All right, Krishna, everyone, this is Achuta Baba from Nightlight Astrology, and today is Bhakti Wednesday, so I'm taking a question from the audience. This question is um, heavy, but real. It comes from a woman whose daughter was involved in the um, school shootings in Michigan, uh, was not directly affected, but is in that school system. And she asks, how do you make sense of such senseless, violent acts and hold your faith? Young children were killed in front of classmates. Multiple more have been injured with some in critical condition. And the trauma all of the students have endured is very real now in their lives. The parents who have lost the young shooter himself, what has happened here to bring it to this flashpoint? I'm not sure where I find God in this, but I'm looking. I want to believe just as my own child clings to the faith in Santa. I feel like her right now. I do not want to let go of God. I'm certain this is not the way, but how does one hold on to God in such matters? I know these are stress points that test our faith. When you sit and meditate and pray in times like these, where do you find comfort? So thank you for the question. A really good one. And first of all, I just, you know, my heart goes out to you, your daughter, uh, all the people that are affected there. That's um, just been too many of these. You know, I remember when I was in high school and Columbine happened, that was my first memory of these kinds of things happening. And it just feels like there's been so many now. Um, my family is from Michigan. I lived and went to school in Michigan for graduate school, uh, have a lot of friends in Michigan. And so, um, yeah, just it's real. It's, it's at some point it comes to your neighborhood or it comes to people, you know, um, maybe there's other people who listen to this channel, who know someone who was there, who was affected. My first answer on the Bhakti path is this, the very first answer that I can, and I'm going to do my best, you know, but it's like, it's a, it's a tough one, but here's my first answer. We can never answer pain, especially when it's immediate and trauma has happened with philosophy. We first always have to answer pain with compassion because bhakti is the path of love. Bhakti is the path of learning to see the divine in all beings everywhere. And for that vision of divinity in all things and all beings to bring us peace, patience, kindness, compassion, tolerance, humility, and for it to fill our lives with tranquility and so that the vibrations of that way of living can spread to others and bring the same qualities into their lives. And so the first thing to do is, you know, to hug people, to tell people that you're there, to care, to be a good neighbor, to be a good community member, in whatever ways, with whatever resources you have available, whatever you know how to use. And that is bhakti. That is bhakti in action. So that comes before any philosophy, always. Bhakti, we, in Srila Prabhupada's, my guru's guru, always translated bhakti in the, in the text, the philosophical text, as devotional service. And he used that phrase because he didn't want people to think that Devotion to God was only something that happens in contemplative states, monastic contemplative states, prayer, chanting, meditation. We feel ecstatic states of connection or communion with God in, in these kinds of practices. But ultimately, if you can't serve others in the spirit of love, if you can't be within your sphere of activity, it's not like you have to go out and save the world, but within your sphere, within your community, within your family, within wherever you're resources and and abilities exist to use those to love people and to bring the positive vibrations of devotion and love 
uh, into your space around you, that is bhakti. It's, it's we have private communion with God, and then God is the one, and we serve and see God in the many. So that has to be active. That's the first answer. And that is the antidote to the feeling of doubt or the feeling of despair. It's, it's go love somebody, go hug somebody, take, get, try to move out of the philosophical void that can appear. Why, what is this? How could this have happened? This seems cruel. I don't understand it. It's, it is the answer in some ways, the philosophical answer lies in laying those questions down humbly at the altar, wherever that altar is in your heart, in your mind, at your home, just laying them down, surrendering them saying, I don't know. And just instead of trying to answer those questions or clinging to some kind of answer philosophically, go in love, go and use love in your heart to serve in some way. Doesn't have to be dramatic. We don't have to save the world, but we can answer our pain by giving and embodying love to other people, especially people who are suffering. And it doesn't have to be grandiose again, just, but just love. And that's the answer. So to me, that's the first answer. The other thing is there's, so there are some philosophical things that our tradition talks about. And I'll say those as a follow-up, but I would say 90% that, right? Just let the answer to your questions come in the experience of not knowing and just going and loving and being compassionate and holding space for and hugging and just be an embodied agent of God's love right now for yourself, for the people around you in your community. And people can do this if they watch it on the news and face despair. Just go love your kids for a few hours, hug them extra close, pour your heart into the people and things around you like they have eternal value. And that's bhakti. That's how the answers to our questions come because the answer is in the experience of that service. So it's so funny how so many things can just be illuminated from within when we set aside the questions and just love. And I think that's a huge, that's a huge thing. It's hard to do that unless we also are in daily practices of love, of loving the loving vibration, for example, of mantra meditation or studying sacred texts, talking about divinity, probing inward into our own heart, listening to how we respond and observing our own behavior, sensitively trying to embody the best virtues. We have to have these practices in our lives so that when things like this happen, the boat's going to be rocked, but the response is to actively love and serve and be still in the devotional mood and take ourselves out of the philosophical void. A lot of the times the philosophical void in us, the doubt appears be, not because our faith has been shaken, but because the world around us that we have used to keep us from having to rely more deeply upon our faith has been shaken. And the best way to, in some ways, when these things happen, the best thing about them is that they they put us right back into our hearts and right back into faith and right back into living in a way that actually matters. I mean, isn't that the way so many people respond to death, loss, trauma in the positive? If not everyone has the luxury to respond in that way, right? Sometimes the trauma is so severe, but that's ideally how we can respond and make the most out of something like this is to let it amplify love 
So that's bhakti in a nutshell, right? But there are some philosophical explanations. Let's go over a few of them. This comes from the Bhagavad Gita. Um, this is uh, this is from. Let's see. Oh, I lost my I, I lost my um, seven twenty seven. Ishadvesha samutena dvandva mohena bharata sarva bhutani samoham sargayanti parantapa o scion of Bharat, o Arjuna, o conqueror of the foe. All living entities are born into delusion, overcome by the dualities of desire and hate. So this is Krishna, God, explaining to Arjuna that human beings, not beings in this world, in this particular realm, which is one of many divine realms, that they come here to work through and experience dualities with the feeling of being separate or apart from each other, separate and apart from our divine source, and that we experience dualities. We're driven by desire or aversion. I want this and I don't want that for myself with the feeling of being apart and separate. And he describes this along a parallel track in the Bhagavad Gita, where he's describing how to overcome the torment of being caught up in these dualities in the selfish, separate, uh, you know, vacuum. Um, he says the answer is love, love of God and love of others. Jesus says the same thing when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? He cites back to the old Testament and says, to love God and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So Bhakti says the same thing. Bhakti says, look, all beings in this world are struggling with delusions that arise from hatred and desire, bewildered by dualities. And that's a part of what we're here to experience. And the answer, how do you move through that experience? How does it become sanctified? How does it become a part of your spiritual awakening through love, through practices of love, through training the mind and the heart to connect with our divine source, which is a oneness that holds all dualities together in the light of God's love. That, that oneness is God's love. It holds all things, all dualities in perfection. We may not be able to hold them in perfection. We may not be able to see them and experience them that way. And to try to do so may be delusional, may be um, inhuman, may be dissociative, maybe, you know, so it's not that we necessarily have to do that. It's that we, we connect with and get glimpses of this divine spirit that holds all opposites in perfect unity. We can feel that there's some way in which this wholeness exists and we learn to connect with that. And then we learn to see it in the world and in other people. And to act from that vision means to love. So Maya, the illusory energy, is described as both an energy that keeps us perpetually asleep. That deludes us and drags us into more and more entanglements. But that is also the word Maya, as I've said many times in these videos, means mercy. So when we have a spiritual practice, 
the dualities. We are able to understand more and more as we go along how every bewildering, entangling experience is inviting us to love because love is the only answer that makes sense to just say yes and to stay in the spirit of love. Not easy. It's not easy because it requires radical forgiveness and radical trust and surrender. Those just, that's just not easy. I don't have that. Do you, you know what I mean? People get angry when they hear this because they're like, that's an impossible standard. <clears throat> it is impossible if we think we can achieve it through effort. But the Shastras are very clear in Bhakti, just like they are in mystical Christian traditions, that this is something that as we practice it, it it's realized through grace, meaning it's not through our effort that this kind of insight or realization or ability to love and to radically accept and trust emerges. It comes through mercy. It comes through grace. It's given freely. It's not earned. You put your faith in it and it puts its faith in you. If you spend a little time with the heart and soul, trusting that all things are held together in love and are for, are, are designed for us in a picture, an eternal picture that's bigger than we can possibly fathom, that you put your trust in that, even just an iota of trust in that, and it gives back exponentially. Your ability to grow is not equivalent to what you put in. Do you know what I mean? That's grace. So it's not a matter of effort. And it would be understandable to be mad if someone says, we well, have to go and do this. You have to go and cultivate this view through practice. Like you're, it's the world's biggest bench press. You're bench pressing eternity and trying to circumscribe God's perfection in all things with your mind. Of course, that would be, that's angering to even think that we could do that somehow by effort. It's not by effort. It's through surrender and trust and faith and trying to act in love, trying to act with the great virtues of patience and forgiveness toward others. When we allow the mystery of suffering to become real, the soul is invited to come forth. For the soul, suffering is always an invitation to find love, to find divinity. But that doesn't mean that suffering is good. Suffering is divine, but that doesn't mean that it's good. As soon as you think good, you think bad, good and bad, God and the devil eternally battling. In the bhakti picture, suffering is uh, not good, it's divine. Just, yes, this too is within the scope of divinity, within the scope of eternity. It's not a matter of saying it's good. It's a matter of allowing it to be. Allowing it to be is the same reason that we don't go up to someone who's suffering and give them a philosophy that makes it all good, which is the difference between Santa Claus and God, you know, in a, in a sense. Believe that this is all good, even though no one's really coming down your chimney and making existence good. You know, you know what I mean? With God, it's not believe that God will come down your chimney and make the whole world good. It's believe that all things are divine and that you have the capacity to hold more in your heart, more in the place of wholeness. 
The soul responds to that. When there's suffering, the soul comes out. Realness comes out. Truth comes out. Beauty comes out. Care comes out. Forgiveness comes out. Mercy comes out. So much of what we think is rational is senseless in the face of devastating events that bring out the soul. That's a real paradox that what we think of as rational often becomes completely irrational in the face of suffering. But that's where the heart's reason comes in and the soul comes out. So in order to keep the soul in front of us, we can't just wait for devastating events. We have to keep, as Bhakti teaches us, as all yoga traditions teach us, as the Buddha taught, we have to keep um, the reality of death on our doorstep every day, not in a morbid way, not in a glorifying way, but in a sober way, in an imaginative way. They're not contradictory. Sober way, we keep death at the door knowing, I have no idea when I could go. At any day, I remember that I'm not this body. This body is a beautiful temple. It's a beautiful, sanctified place, but I may, I have somewhere else to go at some point. So we just keep that perspective in mind. I don't know how long I'll be here. I don't know if I'll be granted with great health. I don't know if my children, my wife, I don't know any of it will stay or go. Thank you for my health. You know, thank you for today. And we keep, so we keep death close, not as a morbid thing, but as a friend, as a companion keep death close at hand, the soul stays present. It's harder for the soul to go away. The soul tends to go away when we start getting into delusions, uh, fantasies, a lot of which resemble a happy, stable life. The soul is not necessarily fan, a fan of happy and stable all the time. If happy and stable are very close to the humble presence of death and mortality of eternity, then the soul is not antagonistic or anything toward peace or security materially, but it's, it can't be, you can't forget about it. So we have to have that practice keeping death near us every day as a friend. Love has to be chosen, which means we can choose otherwise. The otherwise uh, is really important because a lot of what we experience in that verse where Krishna says beings are born into delusions or arising from desire and hatred and dualities, that this love has to be chosen. And so there needs to be a world and experience dimensions of consciousness in which we can choose otherwise. That since there is nothing but love, the otherwise that we choose is a kind of illusion. It's a real kind of illusion. It's the illusion that there is no lover, that we're apart or separate. And it's an illusion. It's like an AI program. It's like totally facilitated and set up for us and ultimately is very merciful from the standpoint of our eternal existence. We have to keep that in mind because every day that we don't choose love is a day that we by default choose some kind of illusion and the soul goes to sleep. The soul comes back. And then it usually takes trauma and difficulty to bring it back to the forefront. Animals, for example, although maybe they can't self-reflect in the same way that humans can, this level of who am I, where am I, you know, all this kind of stuff. 
the tension that animals feel in their bodies to think about how aware an animal is of death, danger, the, 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 if you think about the nature God pan in the ancient world, this is the root word of panic, pandemonium, pandemic. What do these things do? They heighten the senses. They keep death close at hand. There's been big Pluto transits lately over the last few years. We need these guardians of death close. We need the animal instinct, the fear inherent in nature, the tension of existence itself that has to be close at hand for us to be living soulfully and for love to be the obvious choice. A lot of our society is set up to never have to feel that way again. That's what's dissociative, not choosing love. So these are some of the philosophical explanations that I've understood so far in studying bhakti that have meant a lot to me. Um, I think about Moses, who, when he went to speak to God in the burning bush in the biblical story, takes off his sandals. It's like, you're on holy ground, brother, you know? <laughs> and I remember when I was a kid, my dad gave a sermon one time in response to a tragedy in the community. Uh, it was a boy who died on his bicycle in our, who was in our church. He got hit by a truck while he was on his bicycle and died. And I remember he gave a sermon because everyone in church knew the boy. And he said that suffering is like the burning bush. God speaks to us in suffering in strange tongues that we can't quite comprehend, but the only way you can possibly hear how God speaks in suffering is if you first take off your sandals. Know the space that you're entering into is not entirely safe, but it is divine. In the same way in the Narnia Chronicles, C.S. Lewis, when the children encounter Aslan, are about to encounter him, they ask the beaver family, they say, is he safe? And he says, oh no, my children, Aslan is not safe, but he's good. Reality is not safe. It's a tense place, but it's a good place in the divine sense. I hope that this helps. I take your time, processes it as, process it as you will. And again, I would go back to that first answer, which is philosophy comes after uh, just moving into the heart as much as you can when things really hit the fan. So I hope that this helps. Uh, many blessings to you and your community. And thank you for sharing your question with us. Take it. Uh, if you guys have any other questions any, at all, anytime, email info at nightlightastrology.com, put Bhakti Q&A in the subject line. I'm glad to create further videos discussing whatever questions you guys have. It's really great to share this wisdom tradition with you guys and uh, hopefully everyone finds something useful in it. Okay, that's what I've got for today. Hare Krishna.